Welcome to the Brazil Institute podcast, a production of the Walter Wilson Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Bruna Santos, and in the following episodes, you will listen to a different voice. I introduce you to Talita Fernandes, who will be your host in the next five episodes on the future of Brazilian democracy. Talita is an experienced journalist who has covered Brazilian politics for more than 10, than 10 years, and she's joining us for a particular project discussing the future of democracy. This series is part of Brazil 100, a project in partnership with the Brazilian Report that explores the implications of Lula's first 100 days in office. The project's interviews, podcasts, and articles will focus on the country's key challenges and the political landscape. I invite you to visit our website and to follow us on social media to gain insight into the strategies and policies that the newly elected President Lula and his team are taking. Hello, I'm Talita Fernandes. In this third episode, we will discuss social media and technology regulation in Brazil. This topic has been discussed for the last years and it's one of the top priorities for the new administration. This was frequently mentioned by Lula before he won the elections along his campaign. It became even more relevant after January 80th events. During an interview, the Minister of Justice, Flavio Dino, blamed social media for the attacks in Brasilia. In order to address this, Lula's administration has considered to send a medida provisória to the Congress. It would be a quick response to the problem, but a controversial one. Medida provisória in Brazil is an instrument comparable to an executive order in the US. So, it takes effect by the time the president signs it. After that, the Congress has 120 days to confirm or to deny it. If not, the initiative is not valid anymore. This approach has been criticized by different sectors of civil society as it restricts the debate on the topic. On the other hand, the government wants a quick response to this problem once a similar bill under this topic is under discussion in the Congress for almost three years with no common ground so far. Before I explain you the details on how this possible regulation would work, I want to ask a question. Is regulation enough to solve the misinformation problem? To help me on this tough question, I interviewed Paula Berman, a specialist in technology from Radical Exchange. This topic was discussed in my previous conversations with Natalia Viana, who will also help me in this third episode. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I recommend you to go back to understand why Brazilian democracy is under threat. E viralizou em tudo, tá no Twitter, tá no Instagram, tá no Facebook, tá no WhatsApp, tá no TikTok, tá em tudo. Tudo que vocês forem ver, tá essa foto da minha avó associada a esse post. E eu não sei mais o que a gente faz. Eu... The audios you have just listened to are two different examples of false information that were spread in Brazil recently. In the first one, a young lady complains about the usage of her grandmother's photo. Three months after her grandma's death, 
Her picture was published in different social media, suggesting she was passed away after being jailed by the police during the riots on January 8th. Her granddaughter says she does not know what to do to end this misinformation spread. In the second audio, you can listen to people celebrating. Why? They say, não vai tomar posse, which in Portuguese means he's not taking office. When she says he in this message, the woman refers to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, Brazil's president who took office on January 1st. The group celebrating after receiving a false information that Justice Alexandre de Moraes from the Supreme Court has ruled to cancel Lula's inauguration, which is false. How can we deal with situations like that? How to stop people from spreading false information, to believe false information? How make people check the information they are receiving? In the case of the granddaughter, she says she has already presented the case to the police, but it was in vain. Some specialists say the problem is the lack of regulation to determine when the platforms are obligated or not to act in order to avoid a situation like this. When to remove the content, for example. By the Brazilian legislation, the platform must wait for a legal decision to remove any content from the internet. By that, it means it would be almost impossible to get rid from all the false information that is circulating on social media right now. Critics to the lack of regulation also mention that, without any bill, we might have a justice overruling beyond his role as a judge. As an example of this, some people ask if Justice Alexandre de Moraes from the Supreme Court has gone too far while leading investigations to punish fake news creators. Natalia Viana from Agência Pública, who helped us in the first two episodes to understand how the threat to democracy is linked to the digital world, is here again. Here, she says why she believes regulation is important. I'm not an expert in social media regulation, but I'll tell you something that I think over the course of the years I have come to understand. Social media companies, they are effectively uh, uh, on oligopoly. So if you look at you know social media usage in Brazil, you've got Facebook with 150 million users, you've got WhatsApp with about the same number. Many people experience the internet through Facebook. They think Facebook is the internet. These people have effective control on what is being said, replicated, and debated in Brazil. These companies are not Brazilian. These companies are highly mediated. But what happens is that, highly mediated by their own uh, algorithms, but the way they talk is that they talk in the same way, well, they talk in a way that make you think that if you regulate social media, it's actually censorship, or it's actually you're stopping free speech. There's no such thing as free speech. There has never been such thing as free speech in social media, and even worse when they started monetizing. Because when they were launched, there was no there was no uh, uh, economic model. But then, for instance, Facebook started, you know, charging for promotion. And this means that us, for instance, at Agencia Pública, cannot reach our own public unless we pay. Uh, so it's like They've created a huge park where people come and get together, but they don't want to say that it's their responsibility to rule that people don't kill each other. It is their responsibility. So I think 
they managed for a long time to evade responsibility for the content that is uh, posted there, but this is no longer the case. There absolutely needs to be regulation. Now, of course, there is a lot of uh, freedom of expression issues around that, but one of the things that is absolutely clear is that it is unacceptable for American companies to come to Brazil and, and, and rule without any law, without any uh, legal framework, what we can and what we cannot say. In Brazil, uh, you cannot post uh, pictures of women uh, who are showing their boobs during carnival, which is an absolute common thing during uh, carnival. Once a year this happens. It, it's all over the TVs, but you cannot post in your social media. Why? Because in the US, this is not acceptable. LinkedIn last year forbid several, uh, so forbid one company from posting uh, an advertisement seeking only black people for a job. Because in the US, this is not accepted. This is absolutely acceptable in Brazil. There's a lot of uh, justice, uh, there's, there's uh, many court rulings that allow for this. They are uh, promoting, you know, reversal of inequality policies. So what happens is, while they claim that there is no mediation, there is a lot of mediation, and this mediation comes through a, a look that comes from the North, that comes from the U.S., and uh, we, we Brazilians, for instance, third or fourth the largest uh, population on their apps, have no say. So to wrap up, absolutely there needs to be regulation. There is a lot of freedom of expression issues around it. It should be debated carefully. But it is up to a nation to to decide how the how the uh, communication should run through their territory and uh, among their people. I think nowadays in the world the, the, the most uh, the most advanced model is in Europe, and and it's the result of you know years of debate of several parties, and of course Europe has a very socially driven approach to policies. They're much more they're much more community-oriented, like socially-oriented than the U.S., which is a very individualistic country. I think that most of the people listening government according, are, are more prone to look at the, 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 the European model. As you can imagine, when we talk about regulation, many actors might be directly affected, which means the difficulty of finding a common ground to have a bill passed in the Congress. One model that has been discussed is creating a mechanism in which platforms have to report periodically about how they are fighting to stop misinformation. For that, a regulatory authority should be created, for example. If the big tech companies don't prove they are taking action to avoid the situation, they can be fined, for example. On the other hand, this is a relevant concern on not transforming regulation into censorship. This is why media outlets are also another relevant force on this discussion. They are also lobbying for obligating social media to pay the outlets for the information they spread. Nowadays, newspapers, magazines and news websites face social media competition while making their contents to be spread. We cannot forget that also politicians are very concerned about this bill. A group, including the House Speaker Arthur Lira, wants to make an extension to the Congress immunity to the social media. With this, they want to avoid their accounts to be deleted 
or even to have their content removed. This is a similar movement to what has been seen here in the US. The executive power has not found a solution. They don't know which bill to send to the Congress or which one they can support. While the situation is under discussion, Lula's administration has sent a document to UNESCO supporting social media regulation. But if regulation might be a solution, it seems to be not enough. To help me on that, I talked to Paula Berman, who brought us different approaches to this issue. Hi, Paula. Is it a pleasure to have you here? Can you please introduce yourself and explain the work you have been doing with Radical Exchange? Hello, Talita. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. It's such a pleasure and a great opportunity to be talking a little bit about technology in the context of, um, of our uh, Brazilian democracy. Uh, so I'm very happy to be here. And my name is uh, Paula Berman. I work with an organization called Radical Exchange. And um, what we're doing, which is some, sometimes a little hard to uh, explain, but we're trying to reimagine both uh, technology and institutions um, under the light of uh, pluralism. So trying to understand how we can make both our technologies and our institutions more participatory and also um, offering more ways through which we can recognize social diversity and we can uh, foster cooperation across groups uh, with different views so that we uh, strengthen um, how uh, both how technology works, uh, which I think we're going to talk about this, but there are many ways uh, in which technology is broken and, and sort of as separate us and, and bring us apart from each other, um, and also uh, to strengthen our institutions and make them more uh, deeply participatory. So trying to understand how to reinvigorate democracy um, with uh, the new affordances that, that technology are, are offering us today. I think that we are going through a crisis, uh, an institutional crisis, and we're going through a, a profound uh, transformation in technology, in the information technologies and the communication channels that, that we use um, to, uh, to cooperate with each other uh, as a society and as individuals. And, and this transformation is also bringing a crisis of, of trust, trust in information, uh, and how we how that trust is constructed. So I think that these processes are, are linked. Um, as any Brazilian listening to this uh, will know that we are going through a sort of epistemic crisis in the sense that uh, people are really living in completely different epistemic universes. Um, and it's very, very hard uh, to... to uh, create uh, pathways for dialogue across these different universes. It's, it's also um, unlocking, a, I think, a, a sort of mental health crisis uh, when we feel like the, the social fabric in some ways is really um, unraveling. What we saw on January 8th was, uh, was one of the most, I think, uh, horrible, terrifying days for, for a democracy. Um, and, what I wanted to share here um, is that I think that these um, these processes can are about to to become even more uh, aggravated. These processes of erosion of trust, and that's because we're going through an important moment with AI, with the development of uh, GPT three and ChatGPT, and AI 
uh, is in some ways premised on uh, deceiving others. So um, there's this seminal sort of thought experiment that uh, Alan Turing, who is one of the fathers of, of computation, uh, he devised, which is known as the Turing test. So the way that Turing uh, tried to make sense of AI, which I think has I don't know if that's exactly how he, he himself as an individual tried to make this sense of AI, but he had this thought experiment that was deeply influential um, in how we have come to understand uh, artificial intelligence, which was he was trying to understand the difference between um, AI and a human. And the, the Turing test was about trying to deceive um, an interviewer. So an interview, an interviewee, an interviewer would be asking questions to this computer. The computer would be answering these questions and trying to pretend that uh, that they are uh, another human. So it was actually a gender passing uh, test, but um, but it's it's premised on uh, a kind of thinking that is um, that is saying if if AI sounds like a human, if AI can write like a human, then AI is a human, and this question about the difference between AI and humans is uh, deeply <laughs> philosophical questions, uh, deeply philosophical question in the sense that um, um, used to be sort of a, a more or less esoteric topic that not a lot of people uh, were interested in, but they are taking a new relevance, um, a new public relevance with the emergence of AI. And I think where, you know, not to be an alarmist here, but I think that we are about to enter a moment in which the erosion of trust that we have seen with social media and with these new communication channels is going to be truly amped up and taken to a whole new level where establishing trust uh, will become increasingly challenging because we have these AIs that can act like a human, that can we can have deep fakes. We can have all kinds of technologies that are premised on on deceit. So, how do we deal with a technology that is premised, engineered to deceive us? Mm-hmm. Um, there will, of course, be uh, legal means for that, but there are also a, there's also a wealth of uh, technological means, so we can have better provenance systems to uh, show the sources of information to make those apparent and uh, help people in discerning uh, what comes from reliable sources or not. Um, and that's, you know, that uh, movement towards uh, finding better uh, ways of authenticating information online is extremely important for trust. Um, This also brings to mind the crisis of legitimacy that AI is posing before us. So uh, provenance is not only important for establishing trust, but also for legitimacy because AI will not only be out there sort of deceiving people, it's actually producing original, new, useful knowledge. And I think that a question that might be looming in everyone's head, or if not now, soon, is um, what is the right status for AI? Can AI be president? Should AI rule over all of us? 
if if there's this entity that is producing the best possible knowledge, assuming assuming there there is such a thing, you know, and that's that's actually the question: what makes uh, knowledge good and useful? Um, but if there is such an entity that is producing exceptional knowledge, does it grant it some kind of special status to rule over all over us? And this is a very old question in political philosophy um, when dealing with the matter of technocracy. Uh, we have always asked if the experts should be the one that rule over us all. And I think that the answer to both the crisis of trust and the crisis of legitimacy that AI is putting before us is democracy. So um, there will be some issues in which some some matters in which um, AI is AI input is welcomed and useful in the same way that expertise is useful in a democracy. Um, but legitimacy is also a question involves a question of provenance. So, what is the origin of the content? How was it created? Is there a participatory community uh, behind it? because having that participatory community will in many instances be the thing that makes uh, something valuable. So provenance both is important for provenance, participation, uh, communal, collective input is both the thing that I think can help us um, respond to the crisis of trust and um, it's also the thing that I think uh, will help us address the crisis of legitimacy that is already here upon our institutions and that I think AI is making more, uh, even more salient. After listening to Paula, you might be a little bit scared about the situation we're facing right now. But during our conversation, Paula also mentioned some good examples that are already being used around the world. She also explains why regulation is just one of the solutions to address the problem. Uh, regulation is not enough. That there's sort of a, a, the difference between the uh, velocity with which um, technology is advancing forward uh, is too great uh, when compared to the, the speed with which we can develop uh, strong and thoughtful uh, regulations, um, which brings our attention to trying to understand what are the technological means and social means through which we can um, create a better way of um, relating to, to these new disruptions that are happening both like in AI and, and social media. So for example, um, I was talking about data cooperatives. I think that this uh, would be an important step forward. Um, I think that there are uh, important advancements that we can have in sort of authentication uh, technologies. So for example, um, cryptographic methods that allow us to um, sign uh, digital content. So if a, if a public person is making a statement, say if Lula is making a statement online, uh, he should be able to cryptographically sign that in a very easy way so that anyone can 
verify the difference between a deep fake uh, and an authentic video, and there are, there are ways uh, to provide that. And I think that these is this is sort of one example of a technological response um, that that I think um, might in some ways uh, be more effective than trying to regulate away things like misinformation and deepfake. And this question about misinformation is also complex because. Um, it's difficult to find um, a pathway to to regulate that away without also assuming that there is a sort of entity that can determine what is true and what is not. And that can become uh, very uh, politically contentious. So one uh, alternative uh, that I really like um, on sort of how to counter misinformation. One one example that I want to share here that is not uh, connected to regulation, but that I think is very effective, uh, even more effective and sort of doesn't um, cross the line of censorship, which is, which is, I think, the sort of the elephant in the room when we talk about regulating social media, right? Um, so one example of doing that, of countering misinformation without, without censorship uh, that I really like is uh, that of Taiwan. So Taiwan has been dealing with uh, serious misinformation for, for many years. And one thing that they did there is they hired uh, comedians to uh, produce memes that would counter misinformation. So whenever there was a, a particular piece of fake news that was uh, going viral, um, they have comedians that are, that are hired by the government and produce counter memes that uh, dispel the misinformation in a funny uh, and viral way. Um, there, there, there's research that shows that sort of uh, the fun and the fear pathways in the brain are sort of incompatible with each other. You can't laugh at something and be scared of it at the same time. So humor is particularly effective, I think, in combating uh, misinformation, especially those that spread fear, which are very common uh, here in Brazil, uh, as you know. And uh, another uh, example that I really like, uh, also coming from Taiwan, is a platform called CoFacts. So in Taiwan, and this is something that I, you know, I think that we should do urgently in Brazil. Uh, in Taiwan, they offer um, sort of journalistic uh, skills uh, to students as a part of their public education curriculum. So they teach students how to uh, investigate the sources of, of media pieces that they uh, see. That they're exposed to and because students receive that education that journalistic education in their schools uh they're really good at it at, at finding sources and sort of distilling uh the the uh what you know what is out there in the web and there's this uh platform that they have in in taiwan which is called cofacts where people collaboratively add context and help each other get informed and understand what is uh, true, what is purely uh, objectively false, and what is uh, neither true nor false. Uh, so I think that these sort of collective ways of 
making sense of information are probably also more effective than, than regulation and are a way to do that without, uh, without uh, entering the territory of censorship. I also asked Paula to explain how she believes the new administration can deal with technology. And here is what she said. Um, thank you for asking that. I think a lot about um, sort of the role of governments in um, helping address some of the challenges that we have in technology. I was talking about a lot about sort of protocols uh, and technolo technological solutions, but I actually think that governments are uniquely positioned to make a huge difference in the challenges that we have with technology by directly funding and producing good digital public infrastructure. Um, so by this, I mean that a lot of the challenges that we see come from the fact that stem from the fact that these social media platforms, communication platforms are all uh, guided by private interests. They have to be profitable. And that is simply misaligned with the public role that they have. They're critical infrastructure for our democracies, but they're also um, engineered to polarize us and separate us, um, drive us apart. Um, so if we want better technologies, ultimately what we need is digital public infrastructure. And I think that uh, this needs this, you know, the, the internet was created as a defense project by the U.S. government. It is digital public infrastructure. It has been largely dominated by uh, by big organizations um, because there are some, there were some areas um, that some protocols that were not developed at the time. So, for example, protocols for identity and communication. Um, And these gaps were filled by private organizations that are providing us with these services, but we need standards, we need shared protocols and government can play, governments can play a huge role in supporting the people who are doing this because this serves a public good. Governments desperately need uh, good, healthy platforms where citizens can come together, collaborate, form shared goals, um, and there are uh, thousands of people around the world, millions of people probably, creating these uh, technologies um, that have transparent algorithms that are designed for the public good, but they are so, so, so undersupported. It's crazy. It's crazy because this work is so important and governments around the world seem to not understand that part of their role is to support digital public infrastructure, not to necessarily build it in-house. They can, but I think most importantly, um, there's a role for governments to be a major supporter of, uh, of these uh, software projects. And uh, us at Radical Exchange think a lot about sort of mechanisms through which uh, this can be done. So for example, matching funds where governments uh, are sort of providing, are complementing the funds that are submitted by the public and are sort of interesting democratic, highly democratic ways of doing that. Um, but what we need is, I think, we need to have a shift where governments understand themselves as sort of 
providers and maintainers and supporters of um, of the creation processes that are behind uh, any good um, technology with public uh, usefulness. This was our third episode on the series discussing why Brazilian democracy is under threat. Thank you, Paula and Natalia, for joining us here. In the next episode, I would present how the democracy crisis affects different groups of our society. But while we work on the following episodes, you can read articles published in the Brazil Institute website. Stay tuned and see you soon. This project is planned and executed by Brazil Institute. The coordinator is Bruna dos Santos and the production, script and narration were done by me, Talita Fernandes. Oscar Cruz was responsible for editing and the sound effects. Stay tuned and see you soon. The Brazil Institute podcast is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org/brazil. Until next time, thanks for listening.